You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking Stories is brought to you by Mike Carlin's novel, All the Fucks I Cannot Give. The name says it all, folks. This book will take you on a wild journey of self-discovery. From the beaches of Hawaii to the concrete jungle of New York City and to the hidden swinger scene in the Chicago suburbs. All the Fucks I Cannot Give will have you belly laughing on every page. Pick it up in paperback, ebook, or audiobook format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm very excited to share with you my interview with comedian and former professional prankster, Frank Regalo. I met Frank, um, God, a while ago doing uh, doing a show up at Mohegan Sun. He runs a bringer show up there. It's a paid bringer show for all you local Connecticut and uh, Massachusetts-based comics. Uh, he will pay you $5 for every person you bring. you got to bring at least four people, so that's uh, 20 bucks in your pocket. Might be able to pay for the gas to get up there. Anyway, Frank is he's very funny. He's got an amazing story. I mean, this guy has... Uh, done so much in his 77 years on this planet. Um, and I'm sure he's forgotten more about comedy <laughs> than, than I'll ever know. Um, but uh, he's a fascinating guy. His story is fascinating. I was very um, surprised at, at what I learned during the course of this interview. You know, for example, uh, way back in Super Bowl 17, uh, my beloved Miami Dolphins were playing the Washington Redskins. I was living in Florida at the time, we were, uh, that was the year we moved from Florida to Connecticut, but the Super Bowl was what, in January? So um, we were still living down there, and uh, it, it, the outcome wasn't great for the Dolphins. Um, game was strong in the beginning, but um, but yeah, we didn't, uh, we didn't win, okay? Didn't happen. Uh, the one cool thing that I remember uh, after the Super Bowl um, was that the A-Team premiered. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, who who remembers this stuff? I remember this stuff. The A-Team premiered. I got to see uh, B.A. Baracus, uh, you know, Mr. T for the first time in Murdoch. I mean, who didn't who didn't love Murdoch? I mean, the guy was crazy. Uh, fantastic fun, the A-Team. Didn't see the movie that came out a few years ago, but I, I don't feel like I needed to. I, I mean, George Papard, how do you, how do you replace George Papard? I, I love Bradley Cooper. Don't get me wrong. I think he was in that movie. I don't know. I'm digressing. But anyway, the whole point about Super Bowl 17, uh, Frank had uh, played a part in Super Bowl 17. So I think it was second half of the game. Um, there was a bit of a disruption on the field where um, a fake referee was uh, smuggled onto the field. And I think there was a couple of plays he called uh, before they realized that he wasn't a legit ref. Uh, anyway, a cop comes onto the field to chase the ref off. And that cop is none other than Frank Margallo, who was actually in on this whole thing. I think it was, you'll hear the story, um, but it was uh, all in the spirit of promoting a movie or something like that. And uh, unfortunately, the, the the story goes, uh, none of it was captured on film, but it, it all happened on radio. Um, 
Anyway, uh, I digress. But Frank had a, had a part to play in that, and then other many other national uh, level pranks uh, that you'll hear about in this interview. So uh, it is a long interview, um, but it's so worth listening until the very end because the stories Frank has. I mean, to say that they're legendary doesn't really do it justice. So I'm actually going to stop talking right now. This is this is as much of an intro as you need from me. Uh, and I'm going to let Frank take over. Um, you actually don't hear me doing a lot of talking during this, which is probably a good thing. Um, you know, you don't need to hear me talk. When when a guy like Frank Margallo takes the mic, uh, that's when you want to listen. So here it is, everybody, my conversation with the man, the myth, the legend, Frank Margallo. So uh, you're from Brooklyn, huh? I'm from Brooklyn, uh, raised there. Um Spent my childhood there, went to high school there, um, got married there. Well, to dial it back, I mean, so you're you're right. you're born in Brooklyn. Right. Um, what was it like growing up in Brooklyn when you were growing up? Well, first, the first problem I had growing up in Brooklyn was being a Yankees fan. So that led to a lot of a lot of problems. I imagine the Dodgers were still there, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, just, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I was born in '41. All right, yeah, my mo- my mother was like 38, I want to say, um, and it broke her heart when the Dodgers left. Right. Broke her heart. No, I was happy. <laughs> no, but I used to walk to the game, so that was fun. I used to enjoy that part of it. Uh, but I grew up in a poor neighborhood. It was a cold water flat, you know, and we had a cold stove. The bathroom was in the hallway that we shared, you know. But everybody lived that way, so I yeah. thought that was fine. So were you were you first generation American? Second, or? second generation. Second and generation. Where, where's where are your parents from? Uh, both are from Italy. Okay, what yeah. part of Italy? Uh, my mom's from Naples, and my father's from Barry. Okay, my 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 grandfather. Uh, I'm sorry, my grandmother mm-hmm. was from Naples. Oh, okay. Uh, grandfather was from Calabria. Um, oh, yeah. Right. On my mother's side, I didn't inherit the Italian genes. I got the Irish you genes. Got the Irish genes. Yeah. I was going to say you're very Irish. Yeah, I'm very <laughs> Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I. I uh, I like to say, um, you know, my mother's Italian, my father's Irish, and, uh, you know, I just uh, have a drinking problem and a temper, but I can cook. So that's, <laughs> well, a good that's thing. important. That's important. <laughs> you know, when, uh, when I first started to work, I went into sales. I mean, and um, what I noticed was that the Italians and the Jews, they worked in, um, uh, in copying machines and calculators, things like that, in the retail sector, uh, which was important. But then I noticed that all the Irish, they were at IBM, Xerox. <laughs> they had the better jobs. Right. You know, I don't know if they made more money, but they had a better expense account, yeah. I think, at the time. Yeah. You know. So you were growing up in Brooklyn, uh, yeah. going, to, uh, going to games, walking to games. Right. Um, when, you were, when you were a kid, what did you want to be? What did you want to be when you grew, were growing to- up? Totally lost. I had, I had no direction. Uh, my father was, uh, a, you know, he was, he was there. He didn't want to be there. Uh, my mother was 15 when she got pregnant. He was 16. He was forced to marry her. Um, he didn't like it. So to, their relationship was, was not the best to look at. Yeah. Um, so they, he kind of left me alone. What did he do? He was a butcher. Okay. <laughs> Italian butcher? An Italian butcher. Um, what was great about it, we lived in this cold water flat. Uh, we have to put coal in the stove to, heat, to get heat in the wintertime. But he had a bag of meat. Then he brought home every Friday night. Right. We had steak for dinner. I mean, we had veal cutlets. We had nothing but the best. Right. 
So being an Italian guy and, and having the name the butcher, you know, that, that could go a different way. But he was an actual butcher. Well, he was an asshole. I mean, that's, just, that's, that's what he was. <laughs> okay. I mean, he, was he was good. Yep. He was good at that. that yep. was, the only conversation that I ever had with him was when, when I was a kid and we were watching Ozzy and Harriet. And, and I'm noticing that the father is playing catch in the backyard with his kids. And I'm saying, what kind of fucking dooch is this guy? <laughs> so I asked my dad, I said, uh, hey, Pop, why is he playing catch with his kids? What's the matter? He says, son, it's Hollywood. Make believe. <laughs> I said, thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> um so when when did um so you were uh, did you go did you go to college? Was I went that- to, yeah. What ha- what happened was, and this is an interesting story. Um, I had I was decent in high school. I did not excel in anything, uh, but I never I never read. I never um, did homework. I never studied, but I always passed. The only problem I had was English, and so it was my senior year, and and. They all knew I was going to have problems with the regions, the English regions. In order to go to college, I had to pass the English regions. And I stayed after school. They would work with me and whatnot. And so the day of the regions, I go in, and I'm all full of piss and vinegar. I know I'm going to nail it. I look at the paper. I'm blank. There's nothing I could do. I didn't, I didn't know why. And so they call me in the next day because the English department really liked me, and they tried to help me. And... Um, they said, Frank, we did everything we could for you. You got a 45. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. They said, no, 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 no. You got to go to summer school. I said, Listen, let me tell you something. If I couldn't get through with you people, how the hell am I going to go through summer school and get through? Don't worry about it. I said, but it's a waste of time. I'm going to waste my summer. Before I start my career in construction, <laughs> so they said, you're not going to become instruction worker. Trust us. Go to summer school. I went to summer school. I didn't understand what the hell they were talking about. I took the stupid regents exam. A week later, I get an envelope in the mail from them. I open it up. It said I got an 85. Now, that is bullshit. That's, mir- that's miraculous. <laughs> it was miraculous. A, it was a miracle. Yeah. It was really a miracle. Uh, if my mother went to church, she, I know she would have prayed for me, but there was no way that happened. So, so I realized that in life, there are angels that you run across and the fix is in. <laughs> so I knew that. Right. So I said, it's not bad. Right. I said, okay, so now I, I have an academic diploma and I could now get into school. So I started at uh, Brooklyn College. Somebody told me to become an electrical engineer. And so I majored in that. After six months, they called me in and they said, you know, you really don't have what it takes to become an electrical engineer. A lot of numbers with that, yeah. I imagine, right? Yeah. Well, no, but they said that, you know, based on what I did on the other subjects, I should be, uh, take up accounting. I said, okay. So I started taking accounting. I, I liked it. It was easy. To me, it was easy. I found that I was dyslexic. I had dyslexia. And that was my problem. English, I didn't understand grammar. I didn't understand vocabulary. Nothing made sense. And so, so, I, so I started in accounting, and I did that, and I got out of Brooklyn College, uh, Brooklyn Community College, then I went to Pace. Fell in love, got married. Oof. That was, that was <laughs> a ride. I married a Russian girl. <laughs> 
still married to her? Or? No. <laughs> <laughs> On the honeymoon, we, we went to the Poconos, and there was these honeymoon places that you used to go to. One of those, like, the big champagne tubs, yeah. oh, that kind of thing? Oh, it was unbelievable. You know, I went from no shower to this big tub that looked like a fucking heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so we, go, we go there, and it's boring. There's all these young married people, and... All, you know, and they're looking at each other like they're in love. I said, what the hell is this? This is a piece of ass I'm with. You know, I don't understand it. And so after four days, I'm bored. And so I tell my wonderful bride, I said, you know what we're going to do tonight? She goes, what? And I said, we're going to Pocono Downs to the racetrack. She said, it's our honeymoon. We can't do that. I said, show me where it's written that we can't go to the Pocono Downs. And she says, oh, we're not going. And this is the first time that she ever said something like that to me. And I said, uh, I'm going. She says, over my dead body. I said, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going. So I get dressed and I'm going. I said, you want to come? She goes, no. So I'm leaving and she goes, she had a heavy accent. She went, flank, flank. I turned around. I got an ashtray right between my eyebrows. <laughs> I knew then I was in trouble. Yeah. Four days in. Four days in. How long did you know her before the the wedding? Uh, Probably a couple of years. Okay. And what year was this? Oh, God. This was 64. Okay. Cold War is, you know, full swing. Yeah. I was ready. um, uh, I was just, I just got out of, I joined the Marines. Okay. The Marine Reserves. So I'm in the Marine Reserves and I'm in Paris Island. I'm there five weeks. And within the first two weeks, I was transferred from my platoon to the elephant squad, the fat man's platoon. (laughs) What happened was I joined the Marines and I went for the physical with a Navy doctor. And he says, you weigh 179 pounds. You should show up in the 160s and you're not leaving. This was the middle of December. He says, you're not leaving until um, um, April 1st. So you got time to lose 10 pounds. I said, fine, thank you. So now I go home and tell my Italian mother, I just joined the Marines. Didn't that go over big? I'm not <laughs> sure it did. No. <laughs> the only son, everything like that. Da, 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 da. Oh, my God. And so as an Italian mother, and you probably know this through your grandparents, yeah. that they believe in feeding you. If you're sick, they feed you. If you're happy, they feed you. If you had a fight, they feed you. It does. If you're dead, that's the only time they don't feed you, but they feed everybody else around you. <laughs> and so every meal for the next three months was the last supper. You'll call a Parmesan, raviolis and sausage. I mean, it was amazing. It was, it was wonderful, except I kept on putting on weight. So you, say you show up in April at 220? 226. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, 226. You know how I know? Because we were in orientation for two weeks when we get to Paris Island. And then um, the, day, the, the morning we start, or the day before we take our final physical, and they had these felt pens where they would write your weight on your stomach when you got on the scale. And there was a few of us in red. And I still didn't think anything of it. So I remember the 226. And I said, huh, I did put on a few pounds. And so, so, so what happens, the next morning we start training, and they throw the garbage can down the, uh, the aisle of the barracks, and everybody wakes up 5 in the morning. They call out six names. 
And I was one of the six names. And they said, Packy Gear, you're going to special training branch. I said, oh, thank God. They read my application. I said, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. So I'm done with this bullshit. I'm going right to flight school. You can't fit in the cockpit. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) The last one to recognize your fat is yourself. Remember that. So now, so now, um, we get on a bus and there's a bus driver that picks us up and, and he says, where are you going? Give me special training branch. I said, are you all going there? Yeah. He said, do you know where you're going? So I tell him my stupid story and he laughs and he says, look at you. What do you all have in common? Uh, a couple of them are Jewish fellows, you know, I could <laughs> tell. And that wasn't it. I said, oh, I don't know. We're from New York. No, you're all fucking fat. <laughs> fat? <laughs> yes. You're going to the fat man squad, the elephant squad. Good luck. I said, that, I said, that's special training branch? He said, yeah, that's on one side. On the other side is motivation. You never want to go there. That's if you do something wrong, they send you there, and you get big rocks, and you make it with the small rocks. I said, yes, sir. So I get there. And the first day, I lost 12 pounds. First day? First day. Here's what they did. You get up, you do PT for uh, about an hour, then you run to breakfast. You have a very lean breakfast, uh, some scrambled eggs, dry toast and orange juice and one cup of coffee. You run back, you do PT again. Lunchtime, you do the same thing. You have a little protein, a little vegetable, and that's it. You come back, you do more PT. Same thing for dinner. You come back, but this time you go to a Carson hut. That's one of these long things where they had these heat blowers coming down. And, and they would blow heat on you, except you got a rubber suit on. And you ran at your own pace until you fell, until you dropped dead to the ground. Then they come over with a hose. I'm sure they don't do it anymore. They come over with a hose. They, wake, they get you going again. They, take you, they strip you down. They put you on a square, on a scale. And they're all high find each other. They're so happy that you lost fucking 12 pounds. That's unbelievable. I thought you were going to say, like, you know, Frank, uh, we, we saw your New York regents for your English, and we want you to be the uh, platoon scribe. <laughs> they didn't. So you're in, so you, you, so I'm, so I'm in the elephant squad. I'm in there for about two weeks. And then on a Saturday morning, a DI calls me into his office, and I go, and you've spoken to the third party. So the private's here to see the DI. He says, private, who the fuck are those people out by that hatch? I look out. It's my girlfriend and my father. And I said, well, that's my cousin and my father. Why are they here? I said, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe my mother died. I have no idea why they're here. He says, you have to see them. They're, going, they're here to see you today and tomorrow. You got, you, they get you from 9 to 5 for two days. If you don't tell them anything, you come back here. Okay. I go out. And I said, what the hell are you guys doing here? Eh, we want to take a ride, blah, blah, blah. My father wasn't working. Uh, so the first time I'm alone with my girlfriend, future wife, and, and we're walking down this private path, and she starts to cry. And I said, you know, it's okay. I got a handle on this. I know what I'm doing. She says, I'm not worried about you. Your father's trying to fuck me. <laughs> Fucking hound! I'm gonna fucking kill him. No, no, leave him alone. I got it under control. Don't worry about it. Okay. So that that was that episode. So I I spent um, 
uh, two and a half months there. Wait, no, wait, were your parents still together at the oh, time? Oh, yeah, yeah. They were still living together, unhappily, but they were together. So, That's a power move right yeah. there, trying to get the, oh, yeah. the well, son's girlfriend. Well, he was an asshole. I mean, I told you that, and I will continue to tell you this during this interview. So now what happens is that um, I get out of uh, the Fat Man Squad. I lost uh, the weight I was required to lose. I go to a platoon. I'm in the platoon exactly 45 minutes. And we go in the back to do PT. And we're doing sit-ups. And so he says, "Give everybody give us 50 uh, sit-ups. So I'm doing my sit-ups. And all of a sudden, there's a boot in my chest. And he says, why are you cheating? I said, sir, the private isn't cheating. Sit-ups. I mean, what am I doing wrong? He says, oh, don't you talk back to me, you motherfucker. Get up. He I, picks me up and he hits me and I go down. And he says, you're out of here. You're going to motivation. And I said, motivation? I'm so scared. Why did you put me in the bus to come back? I could have stayed there and just walked down the aisle, you know, to the hallway. So now I go to motivation. The first thing they do is take my, <laughs> they take my shoelaces off and my belt so I won't hang myself. So now I have pants that don't fit. I mean, my trousers don't fit. And uh, they wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't give me anything because it would do harm to your body if they give you. I even wanted a paper clip to put it in. They said, no, you'll stick yourself with it. I said, why would I stick myself with it? I'm not stupid. The only stupid thing I did was join this fucking place. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I go. So I spent two weeks getting picked up every morning into a truck. We go deeper into the woods, and there's a rock pile. We would take a sledgehammer and make small rocks out of big rocks. I got to admit, I mean, the Marines did teach me discipline. <laughs> I mean, they did. Do you think you needed discipline at that point in your life? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, I did. Um, so what year was this? What year did you go in? Uh, 63. All right, so this is like right before... I got married. Before you got married, but before Vietnam, before like the it world... Just started. It was just started. It was, it was just starting. So the culture in the U.S. is like on the brink of like right. exploding right. into like the hippies and all that right. stuff. So I wound up spending uh, six years in, in the reserves. Um, one, uh, it was supposed to be five, but then Vietnam escalated. And, and for some strange reason, my alpha was never called up. I was going to say, you never, you never got to go never there? Got, never got called up. I was in the communications. I was a wireman. Um, did you ever think about like what that you dodged a bullet, or did you ever wonder like what would have happened to you if you had gone over there? Yeah, you know, I I wanted to go in a, in a way because I was a marine, and that's what you're supposed to do. And they, they kept on telling us we're going to get called up this year, we're going to get called up this year, we're going to Nam, we're going to Nam, and we all waited, and it never happened. You know, so you do what you had to do, and yeah. you did it. You know, type of deal. Okay, so you did six years. I did six years, yeah. You got married when you got out? I got married, uh, no, I got married while I was still a reservist. Okay, okay. You know, I was going up to meetings in uh, Fort Schuyler in the Bronx. I mean, his, uh, Vietnam is, is, is going on. I mean, it's the middle of Vietnam. It's in 67, 68, sometime like that. And I come from a sales background. I was working for Smith Corona Marchant, SEM, selling copy machines. And that's how I got to Connecticut in 67. I was uh, transferred up here as a manager of Fairfield County selling copy machines. And um, so I moved up here. And I was still going to meetings in the Bronx. And so this, so this, so this guy comes up to me and he says, Frank, if there's anybody that could help me, I know it's you. I said, what? It's a Saturday morning at 930 
in full util- utilities. He says, my wife is eight and a half months pregnant. I said, okay. I have to get laid. I have to get laid today. Okay. I mean, why are you talking to me? Well, it's simple. I mean, Frank, you are known to be able to help people out in situation. <laughs> I mean, help. You're I a mean, pimp is what he said. Right. I said, no, 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 no. I have a source for my clients. I'm in sales and I have sources where I, in those days it was definitely um, mad men. I mean, that's, that's basically what was going on. And, um, you know, I had a source and, and says, you have to help me out. I beg you to help me out. So I said, all right, let's make a phone call. So, so we go to the payphone, and I call up my person, Ann Scott, who's her name, and uh, not her real name. Uh, no, she was Jamaican. I'm with a heavy accent, so I don't think that's. Hey, mom. But I tell you one thing that she had. Uh, she was a great business lady. Um, we were able to bring clients to her facility, and she would send me a bill of Ann Scott office products, and I was able to process it, and the money would go right to her. And have to deal with it. And the company, you know, the people that I worked for knew what was going on. And that was part of the game. So anyway, so so I call her up and I tell her the situation. She says, well, I have somebody uh, that's living there right now. And I can make a phone call. And what time do you want to go? I said, 12 o'clock. You know, you'll get there for 12. And so she says, fine. Um, just, just show up and, you know, she, she, I'll tell her who you are and she'll let you in. It was a brownstone on 75th Street or 5th Avenue. So we parked the car in the garage, and we walk up to Fifth Avenue, and we make a left turn onto Fifth. There's a parade going on, a May Day parade, and we have the utility. And you got your stuff. We, we, we're Marines walking there. <laughs> they don't know what our mission was. <laughs> <laughs> we're the enemy right now. We are the enemy on Fifth Avenue, and so. Also, we get pelted with eggs and cursing at us and everything like that. And, I mean, it was hysterical. I mean, so we show up. We got eggs all over us and everything. <laughs> Fortunately, we were able to take a shower one night and clean ourselves up. I'm sure they like that. Yeah. They appreciate oh, that. Oh, you know, I, I hate to talk about this, but something else happened in that vein. I was in the employment agency in Stanford. I started uh, – I was up here with SEM for a couple of years, and I was tired of being up here. I wanted to get back to Manhattan. And so I called up my boss, and I said, you know, when are you going to bring me back to Manhattan? And I said, well, you're too young. Give yourself another three, five years. I mean, to me, that was a lifetime. And so I said, okay. And I said, well, i got to do something else. And so I started an employment agency. I had five agencies in Connecticut. So I was doing okay. And um, you're, you're helping people find jobs. Right. Yeah. And so um, I hit a goal, I hit the gold mine here in Stanford because it was called MST Placement Service, Management, Sales, and Technical. And um, uh, I put an ad in for a receptionist slash secretary. About a thousand women applied. I mean, I couldn't believe this. That all these women. Where do I? Then all of a sudden, companies started to move into to Stanford, and this was the renaissance of Stanford. So, what back. year was this? 69. Okay. Yeah, 69. It was happening then. You know? And so, you know, the business just took off. And so I get a phone call from my uncle, my mother's sister's husband. And he started off the same way as the Marine did. 
that there's anybody I could talk to and turn to at a time of need, I know it's you, Frank. <laughs> You're like the godfather now. I said, what, what, what's the matter? He says, you know your aunt is sick. And I said, yes, I know. And he says, I've been faithful to her for the last six months. I haven't had sex. I said, well, why are you telling me this? He says, because if there's anybody in this world that could help me, I know it's you. I said, no. Oh, God. I said, well, how do you know I could help you? He says, because you got my two sons laid <laughs> when, they were, when they were virgins. Like, you helped me out that. I forgot. I said, okay. All right. All right. For my, for my aunt, I'll do this. Okay, what for my aunt, I'll do this. Yeah, so he would leave her alone. So I said, "What? When do you want to do this?" He says, "Thursday at 6. Precise. I can't. It's May Day. I can't do it. <laughs> so Thursday at six. I said, "Call me back in two hours. I have to call Lance Scott." So I call Lance Scott, and um, and so I tell her, "I said, don't charge him. You know, send me a bill. I'll pay it." But he's only going up there once, so I don't want to hear anything else. Okay. All right. So he calls me back in two hours. I said, Uncle Feb, you're all set for Thursday night at 6. Night? What do you mean night? i got to be home for dinner at 6. I'm at 6 in the morning. 6 in the morning? I said, are you crazy? 6 in the morning? Uh, call me in two hours. <laughs> Call her up and explain, and she said, somebody's living there. I will set it up, blah, blah, blah. So we set it up. Oh. I got into my office at 9 o'clock. The phone's ringing. It's him. He didn't know how to thank me. It was the best five minutes of his life, he said. <laughs> I swear to you, that's what he said, the best five minutes. So I, I think he was exaggerating, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps, if it's been that long. Yeah. So, so six months go by. I go up there with a client. And what I would normally do, we, I would sit in the kitchen with Aunt Scott, and we would play cards. And we're playing cards, and he says, oh, come here a second. So I get up, and we go into the hallway, and she opens up a closet door, and I see four tires there, a couple of vacuum cleaners. And I go, yeah? She says, you know what that is? I go, no, I don't. She says, your uncle, he has no money, but when he comes, whatever's on his truck, he brings up. I said, you're crazy. I mean, why are you doing that? I said, I feel sorry for him. The barter economy. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So when did, when did comedy come into your life? When did you think to yourself, you know, I'm going to try my hat at stand-up comedy? I, I never thought of it. I, I never th thought of it. The only thing that I did do is that in the 70s and the 80s, I, I was a, what you call a professional hoaxer. I did hoaxes on the media. I met a gentleman by the name of Alan Abel in 1974 uh, when I first, uh, in Connecticut. And um, I knew who he was. He was well-known. He was a prankster um, on the world stage. And, he, and he, he, we hit it off talking. And he says, why don't you – where do you work? I said, I work in the city. He says, why don't you meet me in front of NBC tomorrow night at 5 o'clock? I said, okay. So he says, we'll have fun. So I meet him. I have a suit on. And so – we're at NBC. We walk into 30 Rock. We get in an elevator, and we get in the elevator. He puts a hood on his face and a cigar in his mouth. And he, I, don't, I have no idea what's going on. 
And so we get off, and it's the Tom Snyder show. This was, I don't know if you know. That yeah, I remember the, Tom Snyder. Right, yeah. It was the pre-talk shows. He right. was a talk show, but he was serious. It was, but it wasn't like the late, late show. It right? was. It, it was, was after, okay. It was after Carson. After Carson. Okay. It was right after Carson, right. So so we go in there, and the receptionist looks at him and says, uh, um, Omar the beggar, <laughs> the Tom Snyder, Omar the beggar. Well, he had a character called Omar the beggar. So we go, we go into the green room. Irma Bomback, remember mm-hmm. Irma? Bomback? Yeah, she's sitting there. Advice columnist, or yeah, yeah, yeah. She's sitting there trying to figure out what's going on. And so I don't know what's going on. And so anyway, they call him to go into the um, into the studio. It's time to tape, and he says, "Well, he's got to come with me." And they said, "Why?" He said, "He's, he's my bodyguard." So I sat behind him during the whole interview. He didn't say anything, and it, and it was wonderful. I mean, I just had fun watching the stuff he was saying. And so um, we leave there, and we go out to have dinner, and he says, you were, you're such a natural. Now, <laughs> I know what I did. I did nothing. I just stood there. He says, you have what it takes, Frank. <laughs> You've been the straight man, just uh... – I said, really? I said, what did I do? I did nothing. He says, but you did it so well. He <laughs> says, what I want is that the press knows who I am, and I need somebody to take my place. I want you to be the front man for the stuff that we do. Well, that excited me, you know, to be the, the voice of, the, the, the picture of type of deal. And so we said, I said, yeah. And we had a ride for nine years. That was unbelievable. What were some of the things that you did? Like, what's the, what's the most memorable, you know, hoax you ever played? The most, well, it wasn't exactly a hoax. He was promoting his, one of his books, Don't Get Mad, Get Even. And it was Simon and Schuster. And he got a budget to go out to uh, Pasadena for the Rose Bowl and stop the Rose Bowl. And the game plan was that we had somebody dressed as a referee and I was going to dress as a cop. We will somehow get onto the field, and during the second half, the referee would go out, blow his whistle, stop the game, tear off his shirt, that said, and underneath it said, don't get mad, get even, and publicize it that way. And they had no idea you were going to do that. Did, who? Nobody. No, 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 no. I mean, no. you know, they, they... Oh, no, they wouldn't allow that if they knew. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like get, this... Oh, let's get approval to do this. <laughs> you know? We've got this idea. What <laughs> no. do you think? So they, so they said no. I mean, they didn't say anything. So we just, so it was so easy in those days. This was 83. Okay. This was 83. It was so easy. I'm dressed as a cop. Guys dressed as a referee. It's 85 degrees. We have raincoats on, buttoned up to here. We had shopping bags with the, uh, with the hats on and whatever else we needed. And we passed the security cops and walked right in. Nobody challenged us. There was no challenges. There was no anything. And so at halftime, we start taking off the raincoat. We put on um, the hats. And by the time we got to the gate to get onto the field, I look like a cop. He looks like a referee. And there's a, 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 a yellow slicker that says security on the back of it. And some guy goes, yeah. And I said, he's the alternate referee. He was mugged leaving the hotel. He just got out of the hospital. <laughs> they open the door and we get on. <laughs> so... So I said, that was easy. <laughs> so now, so now we're, we're on the sidelines, and uh, second half starts, and Miami has the ball, and they're ready to punt. Just as he's punting, I send the referee out, and he blows his whistle. Everybody stops. 
nobody's doing anything. I said, well, what's going on here? And he's got the shirt that says, don't get mad yet, evening. People start booing, but nobody's doing anything. So he starts running around the players. And I said, well, I got to go out here now. So I go out after him, and I start running around after him. It was like the Keystone Cops. The Keystone Cops. Yeah, it was Keystone Cops. But nobody's doing anything. So I'm getting tired. I was fat. I'm getting tired. So I tackle him, right? And I'm dragging him off, and everybody starts booing. And so I grab him, and we get to the sidelines. And before you know it, 10 people jumped on him. And they just pulled him away from me. Harry, Harry, we'll get you. Don't worry. <laughs> so, so some cop comes to me. Who are you? It's a private security. You got any kind of credentials? I said, yeah. It was a, at the time, racquetball was popular. <laughs> it was a pass to Southport racquetball. <laughs> That's all it was. And they said, okay, go. <laughs> I said, what is this? <laughs> so now I go where Alan is, and we had a lawyer there and everything. And they said, as soon as he ran out, they went to a commercial. But CBS Radio did the whole play-by-play. So we got the exposure we wanted. Right. So now I, I flip out. I said, what do you mean we didn't get on television? We're going to get on television. I don't give a shit. So I disappear. I don't tell anybody. I disappear. I go back out on the field, and I'm standing right by the uh, Miami Dolphins cheerleaders. And so when you see footage of, of that, you'll see me standing there. And so what happens, uh, this is a game where Riggins ran wild, and uh, they won – uh, the Redskins won big, and I didn't. That was a Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Oh, right. guy, I remember that Super Bowl. I was yeah, living in Florida at the right. time. Super yeah, Bowl I was living 17. in Florida at the time. Yeah. So I said, I don't want to change the outcome of the game. That's how big my head was. And I waited until the game was out of hand with a little over two minutes to go, and Riggins scored the last touchdown. And as they're kicking the extra point, I run out the field. And this was the year that there was a short season. They, they lost six games because of a strike. So I run out the field, and the, the referee's got his hands up, saying the field goal, the extra point is good. I'm walking over the linemen that just tackled each other, and they're looking up at me as I'm walking over them. And I go over to him, and he says, what do you want? I said, I'm stopping the Super Bowl. He goes, why? He said, why? I said, because you took six games out of our schedule, I'm taking six minutes out of the Super Bowl. He says, fuck you. I said, no, fuck you. So that would say fuck you to each other, right? And so all of a sudden he takes his hat, goes, he takes his hat up and down, and 10 guys come out on the field. And they just pick me up, and they're walking me out. They're carrying me out. I'm not walking out. They carry me out. And 107,000 people, as I'm waving to them, are going, hey! <laughs> so we get onto the sidelines. And um, they go through the tunnel, and now they're still carrying me. Now, Marv Albert, you know Marv Albert. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Marv Albert's running around, and he wants to get to the locker room, and he's got a camera crew, and he's got a microphone. When he sees me. He comes running to me. He says, are you anybody? Puts the microphone. I go, no. He goes, thank you, and takes off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they put me in a paddy wagon with, with 10 drunks, and they bring me to Pasadena jail. And they get mug shots. I get fingerprinted, and... And now it's time to put me in a jail. Now I'm dressed as a cop. You gotta remember that. I'm dressed as a cop. They opened up this door, and there's just humongous person that I'm looking at. I mean, he was sleazy looking. He was about six five, four hundred pounds. He looks at me. He said, They arrested a fucking sheriff. <laughs> I said, I'm not a sheriff. He says, I hate the fucking law. 
and they're putting you in with me? I said, yeah. I said, I'm not a cop. So then I had to explain it to him. Yeah. And I explained to him exactly what we do. He had no clue what I was talking about, but it was okay. So it was okay. And about three hours later, I got out. So now it's uh, the next day. We're giving interviews. Okay, we're giving all kinds of interviews. And the Los Angeles Times wanted to do a sit-down. So they met us at the hotel that we were at in Pasadena. And we're sitting down. We gave the interview. And they said, could you take some photographs in uniform? Okay, so we go up and change. I got to remember, when, when I got out of jail, when, when I was finally released, they told me, when are you leaving? And I said, probably tomorrow. He said, well, get out of here as soon as you can and never come back to fucking Pasadena. <laughs> I said, you got it, pal. Don't worry about it. Okay. So, so we, we're now dressed as the cop and the referee. We're taking pictures outside of the hotel. And so we, now he says, want to have lunch? Okay. So we go have lunch. And in the corner, about 20 people, loud, drunk. I mean, it's like 1.30 and they're totally drunk. And, and they're... I mean, we have to talk loud to talk over them. I said, excuse me, I'll take care of this. So I walk over to them. I said, you guys are kind of noisy. You're cursing. I would like you to keep it down, okay? I don't want to do anything. I'm just telling you politely to keep it down. And the guy stands up. He says, asshole, you don't know who we are? I go, no. He says, we're the people that arrested you yesterday, you fucking moron. <laughs> it's a retirement party for this guy. <laughs> I said, excuse me. Okay, I'll be right back. I have so long. Good, good service, blah, blah, blah. I sit back and I said, everything's okay. I don't say anything. So one of the drunken women gets up and she comes right across. And I'll never forget this. She had glasses on and she sticks her face right in my face and says, you're an asshole. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and that was more intimidating than anything else. <laughs> So your dad was an asshole, and now yeah. you're an asshole too. I've become an asshole. Yes. yes so I you am. did. You did a lot of those prank type things. Yeah, we did. We did everything. I mean, uh, I became the character for almost Cooper begging, and did a lot of TV shows, and and all over in the United States, Canada, Japan. It was fun. It was yeah. fun doing things like that. Um, what else did we? Oh, oh. <laughs> the first thing that I did, Alan made a movie called um, "The Faking of the President" about Nixon. And so he wanted to promote it. So he came up with this idea of, of coming up with the real deep throat from Watergate. <laughs> so, so this is my first thing that I'm doing, and it's major. It's major. There's going to be 200 people from the press there in New York at the Hilton Hotel. And so, so what happens is that before we start, the night before is rehearsal. We're going to sleep there, but it's rehearsal. The guy playing Deep Throat is an established actor. Okay, not known, but he's a working actor. And he's a nervous wreck because that night that we were practicing, his commercial for Xerox as the monk is hitting this, the TV. And he thinks he's going to get, no, they're going to know who he is. I said, they won't know who you are. Don't worry about it. He's a method actor. And during the... The, the press conference, he has to faint. And so he's practicing fainting. Now, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not from any kind of acting school. <laughs> Either you go down or you don't go down, one or the other. You know, but he had to practice it a certain way. Okay, so we do that. The next morning before the press conference starts, Scott Meredith, you know Scott, you ever hear Scott? Scott Meredith was the, 
the biggest literary literary agent in the 70s. And he was the agent for all the presidents for their books. Gotcha. And whatnot. He did Nixon. He did everybody. And so he calls up and he says, now, you um, you represent Deep Throat. I said, yes. Who is he? I said, I can't tell you that. You're going to come to the press conference and find out. He says, I want an exclusive. I want to sign him. I said, well, we'll meet after the press conference. He says, I want to sign him before the press conference. I got money in it for you. I said, how much? 10000 I said, cash? He said, yes, cash. We'll talk after the press conference. He shows up before the press conference, and he grabs me, and he takes out $10,000. And he wants to give it to me. And he's got a contract for Deep Throat in the other room to sign. What would you do? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. Depends how much I needed the $10,000. I decided not to take the ten grand. Probably a smart decision. I could not fulfill what he wanted. <laughs> so, so He's like, I, I'm getting my deep throw one way or the other, kid. <laughs> so I, it was easy for me to, to, you know, we start the press conference and I introduce him in the audience. He makes a bow and everything like that. I introduce him as the agent for Deep Throat to, uh, to make it more believable and whatnot. My name was Frank Santo. Um, I was an agent from Los Angeles, Beverly Hills. Had a telephone number, cards printed out, gave them all out and everything like that. So during the press conference, um, he was supposed to faint, right? But it was so, I wish I thought this would be. But what happened was that, I mean, the reporters were all around us. They didn't give us any room. So when he fainted, he couldn't drop down. He had to squiggle his way down to drop down. And we go crazy. Ah, we, we had a planted doctor downstairs that came in, a real doctor, to, to look at him. And we bring him in the back and whatnot. And I come back a half hour later and tell him that uh, the press conference will resume tomorrow. He's not able to talk now. And uh, so a guy from the Washington Post says, I am so-and-so from the Washington Post. And um, I believe you're a phony. That is not deep throat in there. I said, it is deep throat. He says, I could get Bob Woodward on the phone. And he will dis- tell you that that is not deep. So I said, get him on the phone. So he gets him on the phone. So everybody, everybody's recording it and everything. I go, hello, uh, Santo here. And he goes, you know something? You're an asshole. Because I know you do not have fucking deep throat. And he hangs up the phone. I go, well, don't talk to me. I'm, now I'm talking to nobody. Don't talk to me like that. That is deep throat. You, you'll admit it. I know one day you will admit it and take it take for what it is. You know, I'm having this whole conversation with myself. You know, <laughs> dial to, tone. Dial tone. You know, and hang up finally. I said, fuck you, and hang up the phone. So, <laughs> so that after, afternoon when everybody, we finally got everybody out. We finally got everybody out. Two cops, show, detectives show up, right? And they said, the New York Post wants to pay you $20,000 for this story. We suggest you take it. I said, I can't do that. Right? He signed with somebody else for an exclusive. I said, well, cancel it. They're willing to give you $20,000. Otherwise, we'll make life miserable for you. These are the two detectives? Two detectives. I don't know if they were actors or what, but they said they were detectives that had badges or whatnot. I said, no. So Alan calls up. I said, Alan... I don't think I'm going to stay here the rest of the night. He says, what about tomorrow? Tomorrow we take off our mask. We tell him it was a joke. And it was, was it April? No, it wasn't April 1st. It was a great joke. And we show him a clip of the movie. I said, well, fuck you. You do it. I'm out of here. <laughs> so, so I left and he did it. And, 
you know, it was in the front pages of the Washington Post the first day and and the uh, the Times and News, they all reported it. And the next day, they had to put a, tr- a retraction on it about this big, about <laughs> a quarter of an inch type of deal. So that was fun doing that one. Uh, we did the State Department once, which we did not try to get, but we got them. Um, Idi Amin, remember Idi mm-hmm. Amin? He disappeared. Everybody's looking for Idi Amin. Alan was riding on a train to Long Island and saw a guy that looked just like him. And he said, where are you going? He says, uh, where do you want to go? He says, I'm, I'm an agent. Maybe I could help you out. What do you do? He says, I'm a dishwasher going to some resort out in the Hamptons to work for the summer. And they said, well, why don't you go to a, two days later? We're going to have a press conference, and we're going to have some fun, and we'll throw you for a few bucks, and you'll, you'll have your picture in the paper. <laughs> so he said, okay. So, so we set it all up. We check into the Plaza Hotel. And I, I wanted to disguise myself because people were beginning to know who I was. So I got a burnous, dark glasses. I, I grew a beard, which I still have. This is 1981 or something in that area. And, um, and I became Prince Amir Assad. Harvard <laughs> uh, educated <laughs> from Saudi Arabia, swimming in oil money. <laughs> And I help people out that, tr- that need impossible things to happen. And my job was to get eating on me into the United States. And so what I did, I put it together with Shirley, Shirley Kravitz, a Jewish unemployed actress from Long Island. Not your friend Anne from the uh, Upper no, East Side? No, no. <laughs> and um, and he, she was marrying him for money. And he was going to gain citizenship through marriage, not seeking political asylum. So now we send out a thousand cablegrams from England that this is happening to the media. So we check into the Plaza Hotel as Prince Amir Assad. I have two of my wives with me with the mask on and the, and the veils and all that. They look like ninjas. Yeah. So, so we check in to the presidential suite. The president, and we paid cash. We had loads of money in attache case. We paid cash. So we go in there, and um, that afternoon, we call up the jewelry store at the Plaza Hotel and tell them Prince of Mirasad would like a private showing of your jewels. Could you close the store for 15 minutes as he comes down? And they gave him the rules that when the prince passes, your employees have to bow their head. Do not speak to him unless spoken to. And that's exactly what happened. I slowly walked through. I, Alan had a, had a yellow pad with him and a pen. I pointed something. He would write down the number. And we walked out. We just wanted to be known and maybe have some fun doing yeah. it. So, so that night at 2 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. And it's the hotel manager, the night manager on a Saturday night saying, we just heard that Idiot means in the hotel. And so I get on in my voice and I tell him, no, he'll be here tomorrow for a press conference. He says, I'll be right up. So he comes up. And so this is the first time Prince Amir Asad is really going to be one-on-one with somebody. So he walks in. And the first thing I do, I had a big ruby ring on. I go like this. I put it in his face and I look down. <laughs> 
And I wait until I feel the moisture on my hand, on my finger, knowing that he kissed the ring. I felt it. I looked up. I said, you have nothing to be afraid of or worried. I said, I'll have security here to protect your guest. He says, that's unacceptable. I will have my own security here. I said, if you wish to have your security, I welcome it. And so he had five armed guards in the back of the room. It was perfect. It was perfect. So so I got the second selectman from uh, Fairfield to be the uh, judge because he was going to get, I mean, he was getting married. So he was going to do the ceremony <laughs> type of deal. So there's 200 members of the press there. Start the press conference. And all of a sudden I start hearing screams coming out. No. He's so large. He's so large. I didn't realize that. I excused myself. I mean, there's these French doors to get into the uh, the bedroom. <laughs> this is a presidential suite. Right? So, <laughs> so I go back there, and you hear yelling and screaming. And then I come back, and I said, she just met uh, Edie for the first time and didn't realize he was a large man. And so we had to renegotiate the amount of money her and her family are getting. Now, this was all just opportunity because because he was, Abe it, saw a guy on a train. That's right. And there's, you're not promoting anything. No. It is just for... Well, HBO was involved in this. Okay, HBO gave Alan money to come up with a spoof. And so, and so the, they were the money behind it. Now, HBO says they'll have their own press people there, supposedly, to, to film it. And he says, no, no, I got people. I'll pay them as part of the $10,000 budget we got or something like that. Okay. Alan, you know, was on the cheap side, and, 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 and the guy's battery was dead when he started, <laughs> so we couldn't film it. <laughs> so you don't have a record of it? We don't have a record of it. No, CBS wanted uh, the, the, the CBS... The, uh, the guy wanted the two thousand dollars or something like that. You know, it was if we needed it, we could have, we could have gotten the same thing with NFL films. They yeah. want ten thousand. They want ten thousand dollars showing the referee and me on the field. They want ten grand for that. <laughs> so anyway, so um, so we had the press conference and they're, they're buying into it. I mean, they really bought into it. And so I bring out. Oh, I don't. I forgot to tell you this. So a uh, half hour before the press conference, I'm in the back, and one of my security people comes up to me and says, the State Department is here to see you. I said, who? <laughs> Sergeant Schaefer. I'll never forget it. Sergeant Schaefer from the State Department. I said, okay, bring him in. So I'm thinking, this guy's poor guy. He's having coffee on the Upper East Side <laughs> with his dog and reading the Times. And all of a sudden, they said, hey, there's some crap crack park down there saying they have eating. I mean, go check it out. So he's down. He shows up with a suit on and everything like that. I did what I always do. Boom. The ring goes into his face and I'm waiting and I feel the moisture. I said, this guy's been around. That's good. So he introduces him to gives me his card and he says, um, is it true that Idi Amin is here? I said, no, he's on his way. He just landed at Teterboro airport. He says, what? I said, yeah, he's here. Is he seeking political asylum? I go, no, he's marrying a, and I would say it, he's marrying a Jewish girl from Long Island. I mean, I would just say he's, not, he's marrying an American. He's marrying a Jewish American girl from Long Island. Put that in your hat. 
<laughs> so he says he can't do that. I said, why? Why can't he do that? She's free to do anything she wants. Why is she marry him? I said, for a considerable amount of money. Stupid. What do you think he's married? Well, I didn't say exactly that. I'm in character as Prince Amir Assad. And so he says, well, I, I don't know what to do. I said, well, why don't you go outside and watch the press conference? So he goes outside, and he takes a landline, and he calls his boss in Washington, D.C. And these guys not known for having a sense of humor. No, well, he didn't have a sense of humor because he thought this was happening. I mean, they were it this way. And so during the press conference, now up until the, pre- uh, up until the wedding ceremony, it was real. I mean, it was real. They were, of course, the press, after speaking to the press afterwards, they were concerned that I was going to take out a machine gun and wipe them out. So everybody was concerned that somebody was going to kill somebody. So, so what happens is even when I bring out the second selectman from Fairfield to perform the ceremony, nobody's laughing. And the State Department, Sergeant Schaefer, is on the landline talking to Washington, D.C., the people that protect us, and repeats the vows that Idi Amin took to get married into a phone. I never felt so un-American in my life at that point. I was going to say, did it ever get to you? At one point, did you ever say, you know, I think I've gone too far? No, once. Only once. I was doing a a TV show, um, an AM New York show, um, early on with, uh, um, um, what's his name again? Uh, um, Frank, the, oh, God. All my school for professional beggars. I was I did that a lot. I I was doing that, and it was live. And we're taking phone calls, and this woman calls up because what the bit was that for a hundred dollars I'll teach you how to beg, beg professionally, and we'll we'll put you in an airport, in a train station, or whatnot where you can make a hundred dollars a day. That was the bit. People bought it, and so 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 this woman calls up and she says. I have a challenged son. I work three jobs. How dare you tell me to beg for my money? I will never do that. I felt like this. I, I mean, I really felt bad. I really did. And then you went to confession and turned your life around, I'm sure. <laughs> no. no I, <laughs> I just thought of it now. <laughs> so when did you start doing stand-up? Okay, so... Um, have a sip. He's having coffee. That's allowed. Okay. I in nineteen. Let's see. About fifteen years ago, sixteen years ago, I was playing golf in the Dominican Republic and got bit by a, an infected bug and came down with encephalitis. It's happening a lot lately in the Dominican Republic. Well, worse than that, they're dying. <laughs> so what happened was that. Um, encephalitis is the swelling of the brain, and my problem was I lost my memory. And my IQ went from whatever it was to um, 85. And um, it was just a battle to get back to where I was. At the time, I was a financial advisor for UBS. So, so far, you've been a copier salesman. Right. You owned a staffing agency. Right. And then a financial advisor. Now I was also on the printing business. And a part-time pimp. I forgot about that. That's right, yes. (laughs) For charity. I never took money. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> it was a There's a character a de- there, the, the charity pimp. Yeah, it was a deduction. <laughs> the good pimp. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, I've had many careers. And uh, so now 
uh, I was uh, I I went into the food business in Greenwich with my wife, and uh, we did it for ten years. It was great. I mean, we had a wonderful time. Not the one that threw the ashtray at you. No, 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 no. I've been married for the second time for forty-five years. Okay. To a lovely woman that understands me and lets me do what I want to do. <laughs> and so, um, what's that like, by the way? It's great. <laughs> I mean, it's great. I mean, it's no ashtrays. Uh, you know. Um, uh, in fact, her father, who's a hundred years old, recently broke his hip and he moved in with us. And I'm having the time of my life with him. Because he still have those, all his marbles, and, yeah. and we joke around a lot. I bring him every place, and it's fun. I have a lot of fun doing that. All right, so you're back from the DR. You've okay. got encephalitis. Right. Your IQ is that of? Right. Uh... We don't know. I mean, it was to me, the first couple of years of dealing with this was great. Imagine waking up every morning and nothing bothers you. I mean, nothing bothered me. I had no ill will towards anybody. I just was enjoying life, as limited as it was. I wasn't allowed to read newspapers or watch the news. And so I was just watching television shows that didn't mean anything to me. And two years went by, and I didn't realize it uh, other than the fact that life was okay. You know, I had no responsibilities, no nothing. And so then the neurologist says, okay, we've got to start doing things, you know, type of deal. And he says, do you do crossword puzzles? And I said, no, I can't. And Nancy tells him that I have encephalitis and I can't put words together. And that reminds me of when I went into, uh, when I went into the financial business, I was 57 years old, I think. And um, I had to take the Series 7 test. And so I said, I won't have a problem. You know, I could studied this, you know, they gave me two big manuals that are about a foot each deep. And I said, I could read it. I read the first page and nothing made sense to me. Did you have to go to summer school for that? No, no. What I did, I was smart. You know, I, I figured it all out. What I did in the back of the books, there were a practice tests. And for three months, all I did was take the same practice test, 40 different tests over and over yeah. and over again. And so then I was in I was in this training program with three people, and two of them took the test before me and never saw them again because they failed the test and they got fired. And I said, "Oh my God, this is this is serious stuff." I said, "At fifty-seven, I can't believe I'm going to fail this. And what am I going to do? I'll finally get into construction or the mafia, one or the other. I still think I have relatives in it. I think I can make that connection." So. So um, I go take the test, and uh, for some strange reason, when the results came out, I saw an eight as the first number, so I knew I was okay, and I passed the test, and I did it for uh, about eight years before I got sick. Yeah. So I, so they got rid of me. They they retired me immediately. I mean, once they realized that I couldn't do anything, they they got rid of me, and so um, I, I I tell the guy, I said I like to write. He says, okay, write. So I tell Nancy, I said, I'm going to write a screenplay about something. She goes, what? I said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to write it. For six months, six days a week, I was in my office on the computer writing a screenplay. I finish it after six months. I wouldn't let Nancy see it. Nobody saw it. So I print it out, and I call her in proud. I mean, I was so proud of this. I mean, the first thing that I really wrote that has life to it. So I give it to her and I said, could you read it? And so two minutes later, she says, I'm finished. 
It was six pages. Six now, pages. Six pages. I couldn't count. I mean, there was no. I didn't know what one, two, three. I didn't know any of that stuff. And she says, "Well, it has a, it has possibilities." <laughs> trying to be nice. That's right. She says, "Why don't you call up Larry? You know, he writes screenplays. I mean, you know, you could uh, maybe he'd want to work with you." And so I call up Larry and and I tell him. He says, "You know, what is it about?" I said, "It's a love story. It's a great love story." And he goes, mm. You know, who said, why don't you write about your life? That's more interesting. The life you did, what you did. I mean, it's just wonderful. I mean, it's so rich. And I said, you know, I wrote 80 pages years ago about it, about the hoaxes that I used to do. And, and, and what I was always concerned about is when I, I Prince Amir Assad became a celebrity. And I did a lot of different, I played in uh, pro-celebrity pro uh, tennis tournaments as Prince Amir Assad. Yeah. And so I did that, and and um, he got to hang out in, at, at great places because they thought I was just this wealthy Arab. And so <clears throat> I said, I wrote it something about, I was always concerned what would happen if somebody thought I was really wealthy and they kidnapped me. You know, what would happen? And and he says, you wrote that? I said, yeah. He, said, he ran over. <laughs> he ran over. I had the hard copy. It was 85 pages or whatever, and I gave it to him. He called me back. He says, this is the story. Let's write it. I said, okay. Took two years. Yeah. I mean, because I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, he was wonderful with me, the way he treated me. By the end of two years, I knew what I was doing. And so we did that, and somehow we got it optioned immediately. We got it optioned. It had a $7 million uh, um, budget on it, and they hired some uh, production company from New York to do it. I started meeting with these people, and um, once again... I talk a lot, and they thought that the real me was more interesting than I. Now, how you tell me how the real me, who I've lived with all my life, is more interesting than a goddamn Arab French phony <laughs> getting kidnapped at, in Greenwich, Connecticut, and trying to squirm his way out of that? <laughs> how is that not more interesting than this stupid guy? It was born in that brain of yours. And, that's that's got to be it. Oh man, I don't know. But anyway, so um, they said. Why don't we rewrite it? And so I sat down with the vice president of uh, of uh, Creative Riot, whatever he was, and he was real another doll, another great guy. And I spent a year and a half with him rewriting this stupid thing. So now I got almost four years into this thing, you know. And so okay, we did it. And all of a sudden, the budget now is fifteen million dollars. <laughs> Becomes a period piece. <laughs> it went back to little Frankie. <laughs> so, so, so now, now it's fifteen million. Now they're trying to raise the money. They don't have the money. They don't have the money. And then all of a sudden, the, the neurologist says, "You know, you got to test your memory." I said, "Okay." I hide my eyes and I said, "You are doctor." Um, and I go, "My name is." I said, "There we go." He goes, "No." He says, "You got to do something to test your memory." I said, "Okay." And for some strange reason, I saw a an advertisement for uh, Christine O'Leary's uh, stand-up workshop for stand-up comedy up at Richfield Playhouse. And I decided to, I signed up for it. You know, I called her up. I spoke to her. I said, I have encephalitis. I'm coming out of it. You know, I'm old. You know, I don't know what I could contribute, but it should help my brain, they tell me. I said, oh, fine, come on in, blah, 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 send a check. Okay. <laughs> so, so I go up there. And I found out it was eight weeks, and it was every Monday night. 
and that um, I would have to write five minutes every week and go on stage and do it in front of the 18 other comics that were there. Okay. So I said, listen, my brain gets tired. Right if I go first and then I will take a nap in the back. <laughs> she says, whatever you have to do, Frank. I said, okay. So yeah, I got a bit out of this because what happened was the first night I go, I did not see the sign. I have GPS, okay, and and this was a while ago. And so the GPS was you had to put it in, yeah, you know. And so I put it in. Blah blah blah. It took me ten minutes to put it in, and then I would go, and I would pass the entrance to the Ridgefield Playhouse, yeah. and it was a dead end street, and it was a ball field. And the first night I did it, there was a cop's car. So I get out of my car, go to the cop's car, and said, "Excuse me, officer, how do I get to the Ridgefield Playhouse?" So you make a U-turn, and it's 25 yards on the right. I said, thank you, sir. Okay. Little did I know I did it six straight weeks in a row. I forgot. <laughs> and the same cop was taking his break at that time over there. So the seventh time, before I get a chance to get out, he gets out, and he's got his pad open, and he's walking towards me. And I am, now I'm scared. I said, what the hell did I do? I mean, I got lost. I mean, that's the only thing I could do wrong. And I pull, push down my window, and he says, how you doing, Frank? <laughs> <laughs> he says, I just want to tell you I'm going to be on vacation the next two weeks. And he rips off the directions from here to the playhouse and gives it to me. <laughs> and he says, put it on the top of the steering wheel is that you'll look at, and you'll know what it is next Monday. I said, thank you, sir. <laughs> That was it. So you did the workshop. You did. I the, did the workshop, yeah. and I uh, and we were supposed to do five minutes. She was a sweetheart because I did eleven. <laughs> she let me go. I mean, she just Your first time up. You did eleven. I did eleven because I, a obviously I had a life. I was like a twenty three year old. I yeah. was trying to figure something out. He just talked about me, and um, and and so she just let me do it, and I graduated. <laughs> it was a Sunday morning at the Richfield Playhouse with bagels and coffee in front of 200 people. And it was a star. It was great. Yeah. I mean, I got applause and where I was supposed to get it, and people really laughed. And, and I had a great time. And, and the next morning, I woke up. I said, what am I going to do now? Now, I don't have a job. Right. I, mean, I don't have a job. The only thing I'm How doing- old are you at that point? <sighs> 73. Okay, you're 73. And now you're wondering what's next. What's next? Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to figure out what the hell to do next. And so um, I said, well, I got to do comedy. I mean, I got to do stand-up someplace. It's just a lot of fun. And I said, well, what about the screenplay? I'm talking to myself. Well, you got to get involved with them and you got to do that. I said, no, nah, I think I'll take a break from that. You know, this is immediate response. Yeah. I mean, I got laughs. I mean, I wrote a screenplay that took four years to write the final thing. Nobody laughed. Well, that, that's, I think that's what I found, too, is I just... Right. You're writing, writer, you writing books. You don't... You know, there's no focus group you do for books. You, no. know, you, th- you put it out there, and you hope you get a, a review or two or somebody right. says something to you. When, you. when you're doing comedy, and you, you land a joke, and you get that right. immediately, there's no feeling like that. No. no there's no feeling like wonderful. that. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I'm still looking for it. But, but anyway, so... So now it's Monday morning, and I'm saying, oh, what am I going to do? And so um, I start thinking about it, and I call up my friend Larry. I said, what should I do? He says, well, do stand-up. You're good at it. I, I said, yeah, but where? He says, find a comedy club. I, oh, Christine said, comedy clubs, bars, and stay away from them. You know, they're bad. Where, yeah. where does she want you to go? Re-up. 
<laughs> I got a friend that's there. That became, I became a lifelong friend with this guy. He's taken the class 12 times because yeah. <laughs> he gets yeah. – I, he doesn't, I brought him once to – after I graduated, I, I said, you got to come to an open mic with me. Yeah. And he lived in Upper Westchester, so I brought him to uh, Lucy's Lounge in, Lounge in uh, Pleasantville. Mm-hmm. And we go there, and he just hated it. I mean, he just hated it because it wasn't a padded audience yeah. of friends, family, and uh, that just laughed that you're just walking out. Yeah. You know, so. That's not going to get you anywhere, though, no. right? I mean, no. No, so what happened was I, I went online, and I found uh, Joke is Wild in New Haven. Yeah. Um, I called them up in a, on the one afternoon. It was a Wednesday afternoon, and this guy picks up, and he, and he says, Joke is Wild. I said, yeah, hi, um, I, um, I'm a comic. <laughs> it is, that's a great opening. I'm a comic. And sure you are, buddy. I said, I just graduated <laughs> my credits. <laughs> Another I notch just, in your belt. Yeah, I just graduated from a school in Richfield, Connecticut, <laughs> and I nailed it. <laughs> so I said, I'm just looking for a place to – he said, did you write anything? I said, yeah. He says, well, come over tonight at 6 o'clock and read it tonight. And bring six friends. I, no, he didn't say that. He said, just a, I said, okay, who are you? He says, I'm Pat Oates. And so that's what started it. I went over there. I read it. And he says, tonight's open mic. Why don't you go out? So that's so, when he had the club up in? He was the manager yeah. up there. He ran the club yeah, yeah. up there. And he booked everything. And um, and so that's how. Then all of a sudden, he starts putting me on shows. You know? And I, he was just a great guy to yeah. me. And and uh, my mission in life was to make him as what I could do to make him successful. Yeah, you know, as limited it is. But what I found out that I'm also a businessman that could bring something to the table, which a lot of comics don't have. And somehow, I, I did the first time. Uh, Pat says, "Why don't you come up to you? You could get six people come up to." Uh, uh, he was running the show up at uh, Foxwoods. Foxwoods, yeah, Foxwoods Comics at. Foxwoods yeah. before Mohegan Sun. He says, why don't you get six people? Come up here, and you'll, you'll like it. You'll have a good time. I said, okay. No pressure. Okay. So I sent an email out to all my friends. I know I got my, my wife and my best friend and my father-in-law coming up. So I got three people. And it's a week before none of my stupid friends respond. So then, <laughs> so... So I said, all right, all right. So now I send out another email, and now, now my friends are not, I mean, they're not corporate CEOs, but they've done well in life, a lot of them. They all have done well in life. And a lot of them belong to my club and whatnot. And, and so I said, I have a few free tickets. If you're interested, let me know. 45 people responded. <laughs> Amazing what people will <laughs> do for a little handout. I'm talking about $10 tickets. Right, you're right. We're not okay. breaking the bank. No. So I said, oh, my God, now I get to buy $445 ticket, 45 tickets plus three that I got. Okay, so I call up the club. Now, I have never spoken to these people. Okay, Dan Young, who's the manager, who's a real, real great guy. I'm de- I deal with him now. And so I tell him, I said, I want to buy 45 tickets. Oh, that's great. Blah, blah, blah. What show? Blah, blah, blah. Tell him that. And he says, okay. I said, now, here's what I said. I said, could you put these people together? He goes, that's going to cost an extra $5 ticket. <laughs> I said, well, now I'm in for four fifty. dollars Yeah, okay. All right, do it type of deal. I said, oh, my God. 
So I do that. Okay, so all my friends show up. It was a blast. Yeah. I mean, the place was padded. It was just great. It was it was a wonderful time. I really enjoyed myself. And um, so a month goes by, and I'm still working with Pat, doing going to the open mics every week, and he would put me on a show here and there. And then um, the manager of the club at the time, he's still the manager, uh, hit me. Uh, uh, it was doing a... a doing one of these bringer shows. And so I said, you know, I could go back. I could get some people to go. So I go up there. And for whatever reason, he liked me. I mean, I have no idea why. Whatever it is, liked me. And he was doing a show in Stratford at some beer distillery place and brewery. Fairfield. Uh... No, no, this was up in Stratford. It was um, two, two roads. Two, two roads. Two, two roads. roads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this is four years ago. Over three years ago, three and a half years ago. And so that's when it was just breaking out in the breweries. And so he was doing that. And so I went to see him. I, mean, I went to see him. I was at my club in the afternoon, and that night was a Friday night. He just went there. And so I'm seeing him, and I'm talking to him after the show, and he says, um, do you ever think of running a show? I said, what do you mean running a show? Bring a show at, at comics. And well, we, can stop. we just moved there, and, you know, would you like to do one? So now I'm thinking, all right, I know my brain. I mean, I'm still not 100% at this point. And I said, all right, you know, I'll, okay, I'll do one a quarter. He said, no, I'm asking you to do one a month. I said, no, I'll do one a quarter. He said, okay. So we're all set up to do that. I do the show. I had a blast. I had Pat run it. And um, the next day he sends me the next six months dates every month to do that. And it snowballed from there. I started doing two a month and then three a month. And then they finally realized that I'm dying <laughs> doing three a month. <laughs> so you mean doing it, you're performing and are you also finding comics? I'm to doing come both. Okay. I'm, that, that, that's full time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's seven days a week, 24-7. I'm now booking October and November. Yeah. I mean, so it, it's a job. I mean, so what really do they do? They, they give you the door or part of the door and they get yeah. the booze or? Yeah, they get the in I get the outside. They get the inside. Okay. You know, so it's good. And now, now I pay the comics. Yeah. You know, I'm not in it for the money. You know, I enjoy what I do. I don't need that money to survive. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's I, I always treated the comics that way. When I started doing other shows, um, I would pay the comics. You know, and people and, and bookers got upset because I was doing showcases and paying comics twenty five bucks. Yeah, you know, I wasn't interested in making the money. I just wanted to get them out there, and so, um, oh God, I probably have done around three hundred shows. Yeah, you know. it's it's in case that they don't do that. I mean, no. you know, because they they want to keep it or and and you know these guys are probably trying to make their living doing it. Yeah, you know, versus um, yeah, you know. no, I understand. I, yeah, I understand that, but I look at me. I, I said, this is what I want to do. I just can't. I mean, I'm helping you out. And, and when I hire you, I'm hiring you on a Tuesday night and paying you $200. Yeah. You know, you're not going to make that money any other place Yeah, type of deal. So. Yeah, it was interesting. I was just listening to an, an interview today with, um, oh, God, what's his name? Tom? Tom Dreesen? Was it Tom mm -hmm. Dreesen? Um, yeah, you're talking. You're talking old school. I'm talking old school. So he opened for Sinatra. He opened for Sinatra, and he right. was he was in Chicago the, comic. Yes, exactly. And he was he was talking about um, being at the comedy store in the '60s, '70s mm -hmm. when Mitzi Shore 
She right. had started booking, you know, big acts and giving the big acts the door, but none of the local comics were ever making anything. Right. So he organized the comics together and they, they had a strike. Oh, wow. And that's why, you know, the strike went on for a while. But that's why to this day, any comic working the comedy store now gets paid. Um, oh. They weren't getting paid before. So okay. she was charging a cover and, and not getting and, and not paying. And, and her point yeah. of view was, which I guess I, I kind of get, was, um, you know, this is your college. This is right. your education. This is, you know, I'm giving you this time and the audience. Right. Um, but it but it is interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, yeah, I, I just, the price that you pay. It's amazing to become uh, successful. Then on the other hand, I remember a couple of years ago before um, uh, we got into uh, – who's the one that got into trouble with his dick? Oh, uh, Louis C.K.? Louis C.K. Okay. He gave an interview. This is about three years ago. He gave an interview talking about how it was. They asked him, how was it struggling in New York City as an unknown comic? He says, it was tough. I used to have a bicycle. He said – and I would go to three, four shows a night, dragging my ass to go on, on stage. And all I would get was $200 a show. <laughs> Forget his dick jokes right, in everybody's right. face. That's even worse than that. Right. Saying that, right. repeating that. Right. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. He said that. To him, that's how far off he was. Right. He's far removed about from it. far he removed from the... what it was like to be a little Mexican in Mexico. Because right. he, he was born in Mexico. Yeah. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, he was born in Mexico. Um, what What have you learned about yourself doing stand up? Is what I've learned is that I still the problem I have with stand up is that I have to be totally. I have to totally know what I'm going to say. I can't be as spontaneous as I used to be. When I did the hoaxing, mm-hmm. hoaxing there was nothing written down. I mean, I would be out there for an hour. And I would just talk and what be the character that I was yep. and, and don't lose that character. Yeah, it's all improv based. Yeah. 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 It's all improv based. Now this is a, you have to be funny. I mean, you can't, you can't tell a story and, and, you know, and wait for the, the funny line three minutes into it. I mean, you got to hit him someplace along the line. Yep. And so what I do when I write something and basically they're all stories, they're, they're not one, one line jokes. I can't do that. And so I have to chop it down and then figure out where I could put something humorous in there to get him going to the next line yeah. type of deal. That's, that's, a, that's, that's what I found out about myself is that yeah. I am a storyteller. Yeah. I am not a jokester type yeah. of deal that tells jokes. That, that could, I can never tell a good joke anyway. I yeah. was never good at it. Right. And it's not yours, you know, if it's yeah. not yours. Yeah. I mean, I was the same way. Like everything I do is all – it's something based in my life. Right. But when I first – you know, started going up, it was taking way too long to get a laugh. Like right. it just, the, the people were with me with the premise. And then it's like, uh, you need, you know, I had a friend, he said, look, you got it. First 12 seconds. You got to hit him with something. Right. You got to get him laughing in 12 seconds. Right. Um, and then that, that helped me out a lot. You know, then I just, I changed the way I, I kind of approached it, yeah. but I see a lot of guys say, I, I go to a fair amount of the open mics around right. here. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see like, people grow and learn that right. kind of on their, on their own. Yeah, you still hit any open mics no, at all? Or? No, I haven't. I want to go, <laughs> but my life is so busy. That's yeah. the problem. It's, yeah. it's extremely busy. 
Um, third, I want to uh, South Norwalk. There's an open mic. So they it's so, now Wednesday. Yeah, they what moved happened? it. So the restaurant that they were at, right? Um, apparently they had an issue with the owner. Um, so they uh, they had a, they had to find a new place, and now right. they're at the the basement of a dive bar or something like that. Right. Yeah. The one that's pretty pretty good that's come a long way is up in Fairfield at the Sea Grape. Okay. Um, it's hosted by this guy Nick Scopoletti. Right. He's pretty funny. Right. Um, Funny looking too, but no, he, uh, he, uh, that helps. I mean, that really helps. But you know, it's it's like eight starts at eight to ten, right. kind of goes then. But I, the guy who runs it um, is this other guy, the DJ. Right. Um, he's a good. He'll get you on whenever you want. So if you right. say you know I'm going to show up around nine twenty, right? He'll just write you in. Oh. Um, or you, so it can be a little bit more planned than waiting for the you know the madness. But that, that that's an interesting room because. You really have to win over the bar crowd. I mean, it is a it's a local dive bar. So there's an audience. There's an audience. Oh, okay. It's a bunch of drunks sitting around a bar, and it really it's interesting because it separates the weed from the chaff. Like right. once you hear them start talking, you've lost them. Right. You know, but they'll give you a chance right when you go up, and you got to keep them. So that's actually a good. It's almost like going to like kind of like a UFC gym or something, and really right. trying to to duke it out. Um. So that's and then there's the stress factory in Bridgeport right. for a kind of a different experience. Right. Um, that's actually been pretty good. That's a pretty fun show up there. Um, I haven't hit an open mic in years. Yeah, I mean I should. They're fun. I mean, yeah. you know, it's. I mean, that's what I do. I, I, you know, to be comics. Yeah. I mean, I'm always looking for new comics. Yeah. I've met great people through it. Yeah. I really have. I mean, and, and everyone's a lot younger than me. And. A lot younger than you, but but it's really, I'm 45. I'm 45. It's a bunch of 20 year olds. You made me laugh. Oh, it's tough go. to do. <laughs> but no, it's uh, you know. But one thing I notice is that it's mostly dudes, right? Mostly guys. Couple couple of funny women are going up, but um, but they all talk about the same thing. Yeah, and that's what drives the me women. nuts. No, the guys. Oh, the guys. The guys. They all what talk are you about, talking about. They all talk about their dicks. Oh. You know, they all talk about getting drunk, getting high, oh. um, and that's like seventy-five percent of it. Wow! And then you get some people who kind of break through. Oh, so okay. I'm trying to, you know, I don't want to hear another joke about how someone's not getting laid. You know, that just—I I just don't need to hear that again. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to know about someone's sex life either. By the way, it's like I'm fine with that. Mine is, you know. You don't want to hear about my sex. I don't life? need to know about it. I talk no. about it. I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah. I talk. You know what? I open up. I mean, I used to open up with this, and once in a while, I'll do it. Is that I talk about that I, I go out and I says I lost my virginity at fifteen to a lady that was seventeen years older than me. It was the best five dollars I ever spent in my life. <laughs> and then you just talk about that ever since then I could only date older women. Right. And I'm seventy seven. Where do I find my cougars? Assisted <laughs> living. I talk about going through this whole thing with assisted living. And now I put my father-in-law in it. Yeah, you know that now he's living with me, and he loves younger women. Sixty-five is his wheelhouse. So we go out there looking for mothers and daughters. <laughs> he takes the daughter, and I take the mother. <laughs> so I mean, so I, I brought him into it. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. Yeah. No, it's funny. You know, it's a great time. I, mean, yeah. I really enjoy myself. Um, you know, my wife never asked me to retire. You know, I keep on doing it, and. You know, I'm in a happy place where it's fine. Yeah. Keeps you young, though, right? It's got to keep you young. But, you know, I amuse myself with any. I mean, even when I was sick, I guess I amused myself yeah. where that um, I, I never acted my age. You know, it must have been a bear at seven. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I, I did when I was when I was probably eight or nine years old in, in grammar school? 
I was part of this club. I don't know why I got into it, but we used to read the stories that were in the New York Times on the PA system to mm. the rest of the students. And I used to do that. And every once in a while, I would do something and create a story that did not exist. <laughs> and it took them a while before they would figure it out. And they would never throw me off the program. They no. would just say, don't do that again. <laughs> and two months later, I would throw something else in. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. I remember uh, I used to play practical jokes on my dad all the time. Poor man. Um, the, the guy should be sainted because right. one day he took us. He took. I have a twin brother. He took us up to Foxwoods to um, to see the Dolphins Jets. Dolphins Jets um, game was not interrupted by somebody trying oh, to. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it was Dolphins Jets, and and my mother um, was you know she's like oh the boys Donnie make sure you feed them Italian mother right. Donnie make sure you feed the boys. So I uh, I called my mom. We're, now we're in the skybox, the Coca Cola skybox, because my right. my father always had a connection for something. Right. Coca Cola Skybox, you know, food, you know, everything is catered. And I call my mom from the Skybox. And I'm like, Mom, she's like, What's the matter, Michael? You sound upset. I'm like, Mom, you don't understand. I'm like, Dad, uh, we got a flat tire uh, on the side of the road. And Dad got really mad and he won't feed me and Jimmy. <laughs> and she says, Michael, put your father on the phone right now. I said, Okay. I said, Hey, Dad, Mom, mom wants to talk to you. And he's like, Hello, darling. <laughs> and she just, I see his expression, oh. total facial expression change. Total change. And he looks at me. And he talks, Michael and Jimmy are in the goddamn corner eating a goddamn hot dog. <laughs> and then he hangs up. He's like, why did you do yeah. that? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I have no answer for you. It was there. But I could. <laughs> I, I did it because I could. That you could do it. And you did it. The same same trip, we were at the Boston Harbor Hotel. That's where he put us up. Right. We had adjoining rooms. And I called my father as Victor Kayam, who owned the New England Patriots right. at the time and used to do the, the commercials for Remington. Right. Uh, he said, hi, Mr. Carlin. This is <laughs> I have no idea what the guy's like. This is Victor Kayam. And my dad's <laughs> like, hang up. I go over. And he's like, do you know who just called me? And I'm like, who, Dad? Victor Kayam? He's like, yeah. You son of a bitch. <laughs> that's terrible. Terrible. But, that's I, you fun, know, but that's fun doing But at like the same that. token, he never had to pick me up in prison. You know, he never, yeah. he never had to bail me out of jail, you know, so that's it. Well, Frank, this is fun talking oh, to you. Was, I had a lot of fun. This Thank is fun talking. Any me. dates coming up you want to promote? Uh, uh, August 12th. And, no, I'm sorry. August 8th and August 22nd of Mohegan Sun. Okay, so are you still looking for comics for those, or are you... Uh, oh, that's booked. That's uh, booked. Uh, I got uh, September 19th is booked. September 12th, I could use a few comics. September 12th, all right. So all this will go out to everybody, right. and I'll, okay, uh, great. I'll put, put up the call it. for you. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate great. it. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, that's my interview with Frank Mergallo. What a guy. Oh, my gosh. My mind was blown. When, uh, when I was speaking with him. And, and you didn't hear me ask too many questions because uh, I didn't need to. Frank, just, you know, you just uh, turn him on and, and watch him go. Um, so that's that. If you are a comic looking for a paid bringer opportunity, he does have September 12th open up at Mohegan Sun. It is a, it is a fun show. Uh, and, and like I said before, you get to work with Pat Oates. Pat is a, a tremendous guy, very funny, awesome at crowd work, and uh, very generous with his time and his advice to uh, up-and-coming comics. So I encourage you to do that. Um, if you want to learn more about me and uh, my comedy as well as my books, please visit MikeCarlin.com. That's Carlin with an O, not an I. So Mike, C-A-R-L-O-N.com. 
and uh, you, can, you can learn more about me. Uh, buy a book or two, please. I got three kids. They're going to college next year. I could use all the help I can get. So, so for all of us here at Uncorking a Story, all of us hardworking people, I want to say thank you for listening. And uh, until next time, all right? We're going to do this again. We're going to have more comics on the show. So writers and comics, it's going to be fun. You're going to laugh a lot more. Not that writers aren't funny, but come on. Comics, more fun. I had a very traumatic uh, event the other night. I took my family out to dinner. To put that into context, I'm the father of triplets. Yeah, I'm aware one person clapped, or at least yelled anyway. Yeah, I took my, I took him out to dinner. My, my, one of my daughters has a very sweet sounding voice, and the waitress came over, and my daughter said, "Ma'am, I'd like the steak tips." I didn't hear that though. <coughs> What I heard my daughter say was, ma'am, I'd like the steak tips. There's a guy next to me looking like Bill Clinton. He's like, I'll have what she's having. Uh, he looked like Bill Clinton. I guess he didn't sound like Bill Clinton. Um, but I looked at her, and I'm like, Gracie, did, did you just order steak tits? And this is unfortunate because my son is the one who gives nicknames in my household. So he looks over at his sister, and he's like, hey, steak tits. Would you like to go out for ice cream later? She looks over at me, though, and she's like, dad, no, I ordered steak tips. I say, Gracie, just, uh, just the tips? And she said, yes. I said, honey, your mother fell for that once. 